Well, thank you all for sticking around for, uh, for equipping hour. This is, uh, this is really exciting that we get to be together longer on Sundays and an additional level of equipping uh, for the various needs and, and ways that our body need, needs to be built up continually. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Colossians. That's where we'll be spending pretty much all of our time is in Colossians. If you need a handout, handouts are, are in the back as well. All right. As everybody continues to get settled, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you so much again for this church body, for being our good shepherd, for revealing uh, the goodness of your shepherding. God, I pray that as we turn to your word again in, in the book of Colossians, that our hearts would be encouraged, that this body would be built up, and that we would take it upon ourselves to proclaim you as you ought to be proclaimed, as only you are worthy of being proclaimed, and that Grace Bible Church would develop even more so a reputation for being uh, humble, bold, uh, zealous heralds of this good news that we, that we believe. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today what we'll be seeing is four foundational building blocks to evangelism from the book of Colossians. Four foundational building blocks to evangelism from the book of Colossians. Uh, those four things, as you see if you're holding the outline, are as follows. The message in evangelism, the messenger for evangelism, the method of evangelism, and the motivation behind evangelism. All of those things are apparent in the book of Colossians. Now, Colossians is not a book primarily about evangelism. This is not the New Testament manual on how to do evangelism, and Paul's not even writing this epistle to teach the Colossians how to evangelize. So we're not going to make Colossians all about evangelism. This book is about the sufficiency and supremacy of our Savior Christ and how being built up in him protects us uh, from error. But because of what Paul does write as he pursues detailing the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ to guard the Colossians from error, because of what he does say, this book is useful to make some really helpful observations about evangelism. And the goal today uh, will, will be just what I prayed, to, to see this church uh, more firmly grounded on convictions that we ought to hold concerning evangelism 
and that we would actually better practice evangelism everywhere we find ourselves during the week. So, what's the context for evangelism in Colossians? Paul actually did not establish the church in Colossae. He didn't establish this church, but he actually credits someone else, namely Epaphras, with bringing the gospel to this city. So it's one of uh, it's unique in that sense that Paul did not establish the church there, yet he finds himself uh, praying for them fervently, having heard news of them and the way that they were doing well, some of the threats that were happening to this church. And so that becomes the basis for his writing this New Testament epistle. What might a faithful herald of the gospel accomplish with God's message? As you think about yourself, uh, believing the gospel, hopefully, uh, proclaiming the gospel, what might a faithful herald of the gospel actually accomplish with this message? And the book of Colossians, in a way, is the answer to that question. The book begins with a summary answer. Look at verses 1 and 2. What might the gospel accomplish through a faithful herald? Well, Paul says, to start, Paul, an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. What might the gospel accomplish through people who are faithful? It might actually create saints and faithful brothers in a, in a place. Saints and faithful brothers, and that's how Paul identifies his audience, not two different categories of people, but the same group of people who can be called holy ones of God, saints, and faithful brothers. They are ones who have been united to Christ, who possess saving faith in the gospel message. Now, even though this is what evangelistic efforts accomplished in Colossae and continue to accomplish today, in our day, evangelism has actually fallen on pretty hard times. Evangelism has fallen on pretty hard times. Um, we find ourselves in a time where evangelism is considered, even among evangelicals, a good thing and a necessary thing, but very basic and a starting point from which we should move on to other things. What evangelism purposes to do preach the gospel, that people might believe and be saved by God, savingly united to a group of other believers, a church, and then built up in the faith as members of the church until the day we die, planning other churches, continuing to evangelize, all of those things are included in that. That's seen as a, a starting point and something that's not actually sufficient to do what God's calling the church to do. Tim Keller articulates this view when he writes in his book, Center Church, the assumption that society will improve simply by more Christian believers being present is no longer valid. If you care about having an influence on society, evangelism is not enough. And so in our day, people have taken up the mantle that evangelism ought to become or be partnered with other endeavors. 
So what I hope that we see is not only the, the flaw in that type of thinking by what evangelism or by what Colossians teaches us about evangelism, but that we would be more eager, more zealous, more bold, more prepared, more equipped to do evangelism well. And so the first foundational building block that we see that Colossians teaches us about evangelism is the message in evangelism. The message, verses, verses 3, begins in the first uh, verses, verses 3 to about verse 8. And so I'm just going to read that because that will be the the starting point for a lot of these things that we'll discuss. Verse 3, Colossians 1. Paul says, To the Colossian believers, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you have, or which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. This is where we see who brought the gospel to Colossae, Epaphras is the one credited by Paul with doing that. And so something that we see in in this book is the message in evangelism. Look back at verses 5 and 6. This message first, which this should be obvious, must be heard. This message must be heard. He says in verse 5, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard. In the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is not something that we accomplish, clearly. Christ has already accomplished the gospel. We don't do the gospel. We don't practice the gospel. We preach the gospel. If the gospel, this is a message that must be heard. If as we go through, a lot of these things will seem self-evident. And it's because evangelism really isn't that complicated. These things will be obvious, and it's because evangelism is not a complicated issue. And so the first thing that we see about this message in evangelism is that it is a message that must be heard. It's called by Paul, the word of truth, uh, letter B on your outline, the word of truth. That is, truth is the content of this message. What is this word or this message full of? It is full of truth. If we don't get around to communicating in our evangelism, if we don't get around to communicating the truth in a conversation, then whatever took place in that conversation cannot be called evangelism. We may have had a good dialogue getting to know someone. We may understand a lot about what they believe if we've asked good probing questions, which we should. 
But if we don't get around to actually articulating what is true for the unbeliever to whom we're speaking, then whatever took place is not to be called evangelism. This is the message in evangelism is the word of truth. It's a singular message, not meant content is changed or augmented. It's a singular message whose content is truth. Let us see, this is also a message of hope. Not only is it true, but it is a message of hope. Verse, verse 5 says that. The Colossians had love for the saints because of something. Verse 5 says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And that's another way of saying, because of those transcendent realities waiting for them, securely in heaven with God, because God had saved them and given them these realities that offered hope, or that are just called hope here in verse 5, they developed in them, in the church, a love for other people who possess the same hope. The, the hope that God had given them in the gospel, through the gospel, produced in them love for one another. And so this was a message of hope. Uh, it may not seem like hope to the unbeliever you're talking to in your evangelism. That doesn't make it or that doesn't determine whether or not you are bringing them hope. If it seems offensive to the unbeliever because God may not be saving them at that moment, it seems foolish still, the gospel that you're proclaiming. It is hope based on what God says is hope, based on what the content of the gospel is, not based on how it's received by the unbeliever. So this is, ontologically so, a message of hope. Letter D. What else do we see about this message in evangelism is that it concerns unseen future heavenly realities. It concerns unseen future heavenly realities. Again, in verse 5, this hope was where? Well, it was laid up or kept, preserved for those who believe, the you, in heaven. This is not a message about earthly benefits. It's the gospel is not a message about fixing your marriage, increasing your finances, reaching your God-given potential, or improving your self-image. People who preach messages called the gospel that are about those things are preaching a false gospel. Paul says that this message is about hope laid up in heaven, in the world beyond. It's unseen. Letter E, what else do we see about this message in evangelism? This message must come to unbelievers. That's obvious. He says in verse 6 that the gospel has come to you, has come to you. Why did the gospel need to come to the Colossians? Well, it's because the Colossians would never have come to the gospel. Unbelievers are never looking for the gospel. Unbelievers aren't looking for the gospel for a couple reasons. Unbelievers aren't looking for the gospel because it's offensive. No one loves to be offended. Not me, not you, not anybody. 
And so unbelievers are not looking for the gospel. It is an offensive message, a message over which anyone who enters into the kingdom must stumble first. We must stumble over the offense of the gospel. Unbelievers also are not looking for the gospel. The gospel had to come to the Colossians because, and I forgot my, my, the other reason, um, because it's offensive and because also this is not a message that's intuitive to anybody. The gospel is not a message that people know inherently. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined these things. That's not a, a verse about heaven. That's a verse about the gospel. No one could dream up the gospel. That's why in conversations with people who are of a false religion, you never have to worry about them actually articulating a biblical gospel. Not Catholics, not Mormons, not Jehovah's Witnesses. Not five percenters, Hebrew Israelites, nobody can articulate a saving gospel. They might get something right, but they will stumble at the Trinity, at Jesus' deity, at salvation by faith alone. Nobody has all of those things. The gospel articulates those things, and that is why, because no man would imagine the gospel, the gospel must then come to believers. Your neighbors are not looking for the gospel. Your co-workers are not looking for the gospel. Your fellow students are not looking for the gospel. You must bring the gospel to them. That places the initiative and the burden on us, not the unbeliever. Don't wait around for that perfect opportunity when the unbeliever says, there's something I need. You, Christian, would you tell me the gospel? Because that doesn't happen. We must bring the gospel to unbelievers. We talk about this. Uh, there's a group of us, a group of guys who goes out on Thursday nights to Mill Avenue to preach the gospel. We talk about this often because we're so often reminded of this, that what we're doing, standing on the corner of uh, 5th Street and Mill, is being an interruption in the day of believers. These people who... Uh, in, enjoy carousing at night, are on their way to drunkenness and the club party life or getting off from work sometimes, people are not looking to be confronted with the gospel. And so the evangelist, the Christian who is looking for an opportunity, is practically an unwanted, undesirable interruption in the way of unbelievers. But think about yourself. Wasn't somebody that for you? Either a parent who was interrupting your rebellion in the home or a friend who saw the folly of the way you were living or somebody who interrupted whatever answers you were looking for in despair and brought you the gospel and God graciously saved you? You're an interruption, a glorious interruption from God's perspective in the, way of, in, in the life of unbelievers. So the gospel must come to unbelievers. Letter F. What else about this message? This message produces obedience and knowledge in those who believe, which should really give us courage in, in preaching the gospel. It produces obedience and knowledge in those who believe. Look at verse 6. The gospel has come to you, 
in the same way it's coming into the rest of the world. How? Well, constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. The gospel, Paul says, bears fruit and increases. It's bearing fruit and increasing. What does that mean? If you jump down to verse 10, he further explains or gives extra details that helps us discern what it means to bear fruit and increase. Verse 10 says, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul prays, to please him in all respects. Here are our key words again. Bearing fruit where? In every good work and increases where? In the knowledge of God. He's He says the gospel bears fruit or is bearing fruit and increasing and then prays for the Colossians that they would bear fruit and increase in in specific areas, that they would bear fruit specifically in every good work. That's a description of wholesale obedience. Every area of your life, you are submitting to the lordship of Christ so that you are fruitful in those good works of obedience. The gospel bears fruit, and then he prays that the Colossians bear fruit. And the point is, is really the same. The gospel bears fruit in people so that they bear fruit in every good work. Not only that, but he prays, uh, he says that the gospel is increasing, and then in verse 10, prays that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. The gospel, when it comes to an individual, when it is believed by that individual, causes them to increase in the knowledge of God, in a relational knowledge of God, so that they continually fear him, grow in their fear of him, in their knowledge of him, in their awareness of him, in their desire for him. The gospel accomplishes that in in people. So it produces obedience and knowledge in those who believe. Letter G, it also must be intelligible to those who hear. That's obvious. It must be intelligible to those who hear. Verse 6 says this, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood Understood. That's where we're getting that idea. It must be intelligible. The gospel is no good if you are speaking a language that someone doesn't understand. That's why we spend years in this church training people to to learn how to speak a language they don't yet know and then translate and create a language that may not yet exist, what our friends are doing in Papua New Guinea. This message that we herald is too precious to be communicated sloppily or heard inaccurately. And so we must labor to be understood. Letter H, this gospel also communicates the grace of God. This gospel communicates the grace of God. He says that in verse 6, that when you heard of it, that is the gospel, you understood what? The grace of God. You heard it, you heard the gospel, and you, what came to your mind, what 
you understood was the grace of God. That means the grace of God was being communicated in the gospel. If you only preach the wrath of God, which is a necessary component of the gospel, the sinners must know that they are offensive to God and he is wrathful towards them, which is why they need to be saved. But if that's all you say and you don't go any further to provide the remedy, to inform them about the remedy that God has provided in the gospel, you have not successfully done evangelism. The message of the gospel is a message of the grace of God. There was, a, again, on, on Mill Avenue, um, uh, we, we, we like to stop people. We kind of have the same method for stopping people. We figure 1 Corinthians 1 says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's uh, power, the power of God to those who are being saved. And so we don't want to uh, give a bait and switch to anybody. We just ask people, hey, have you ever heard the gospel? And we figure if somebody stops, then they obviously want to talk about the gospel. Great. Uh, there was a, a, a guy who stopped long enough to, to tell me he was an atheist. And my response was, well, God says, and then in a minute or two, walk through Romans 1, you actually know God exists. And the reason you like to, to claim to be an atheist is because you don't want to be accountable to God. You know, all of those things that Romans 1 says. And when I was done, not knowing at all how he was going to take it or respond, I'm like gearing up for a conversation. He paused and he said, thanks. And he walked off. And I'm like, that's not the good news, right? I wanted to tell him about the grace of God, and yet he was unwilling to listen. But the gospel intends, and it does actually, it communicates the grace of God. It does not merely stop short of God's wrath. Uh, And if people are willing to listen, then we should be eager to tell them about the grace of God. Letter I. This gospel, this, uh, this message in evangelism must be learned and taught. And we're going to start flying because I'm running out of time. It must be learned and taught. Uh, there are a lot of key words here that they understood. Verse 6. They, verse 7, learned it from Epaphras. Uh, Paul says in verse 28, We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching. So he has taken on the role of instructor in his evangelism or gospel efforts. And then if you look at verse 7 of chapter 2, Colossians 2, 7, he tells them to walk in Christ, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed. That's another teaching word. They were instructed by Epaphras. The point here being, again, the gospel is not intuitive. People must receive new information, new knowledge in hearing the gospel. Or old knowledge, if they've already heard the gospel, they must have their minds informed about something that is foreign to them in your evangelism. And we'll look at the implication uh, next of what that has for, for us as evangelists. Lastly, this gospel must be proclaimed. This gospel must be proclaimed. Look at verse 23 in chapter 1. 
If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The gospel was not discussed merely. It was not suggested. It was not shared in the sense that, hey, I'm just going to tell you what I believe and, you know, we can just have this dialogue about religion and I'll just share with you what God has done in my life. That's not evangelism. The gospel must be proclaimed as if it is true, because it is true. It is a declaration from heaven of what God has done about the plight of sinners. And so we, in our evangelism, must actually articulate this message if we're going to be faithful as if it's not up for debate. We must declare, proclaim the gospel. That doesn't mean you need to, you know, stand on your neighbor's table and preach, but that does mean that you need to actually declare it as if it is fact. It's not your message to make into a suggestion. It's not our message to do that with. We must, must proclaim it and say, this is truth. You must repent and believe. This is what God has said. So it must be proclaimed. Number two, what else we, do we see in Colossians? We see the messenger for evangelism. The messenger for evangelism. The person most apt, best equipped to do evangelism is this type of person. A, one who offers hope to men. One who offers hope to men. Not somebody who rejoices in condemning people and bringing a message of wrath alone. The evangelist must be one who is eager to offer hope to men, as we've seen. This is a message of hope. Letter B, the, the evangelist, the messenger, must open his mouth in order to be heard. That's obvious, right? Your neighbor is not going to hear the gospel if they don't hear the gospel. We must speak this word of hope. Let us see. We must be clear so that understanding is imparted to those who hear. When the gospel is heard, was heard in Colossae, it was understood. The grace of God was understood. It must be intelligible. It must be clear. This doesn't mean that you need to reduce your gospel presentation, your evangelism to a, to a simplistic gospel presentation like the four spiritual laws or uh, the way of the master. It has to be done this way. That's not what it means to be clear. But you can do like Philip did in, in Acts 8, start wherever the person is. If they're despairing, then bring the, the gospel in a way that's accommodated to, to what they need to hear. If they're uh, a Jehovah's Witness, then bring the gospel where they need to hear it. If they're a Mormon, bring the gospel where they need to hear it. Um, but it must be clear. If you're talking to children, don't speak like you're talking to adults. Present the gospel as if you're talking to children so that it is clear. Letter D, you must assume the role of a teacher in your evangelism. The one who knows the gospel is the one, the only one in the room, if, if you're in a room full of unbelievers, you are the only one qualified by God to speak truth in that room about these things. You must consider yourself not in arrogance, but humbly a teacher to the lost. The gospel is taught. People must be instructed. And so that means God has placed all of us, wherever we find ourselves amongst unbelievers, 
in the role of a teacher. We don't have an option. We are the only ones with spiritual insight and knowledge and God's wisdom in the room. So we must assume the role of a teacher because that's the role that God has given us. Letter E, the messenger with the gospel in evangelism is a slave of Christ together with other believers. Epaphras is, in verse 7, called a fellow bondservant. That's a, the Greek word for slave, a slave. We are slaves in, in all of our lives to Christ, but particularly in evangelism. That means our will, what we do with the gospel and what with the unbeliever is entirely submitted to the will of Jesus. We are not allowed to change the message to save someone that God's not saving, and we're not allowed to change the message and fall short of what God is calling us to say to someone who God is saving. We are slaves in our evangelism. And then letter F, we must be characterized by faithfulness. He is a fellow bondservant who is a faithful minister or servant of Christ. We must be faithful. Horatius Bonner says in his book, Word to Winners of Souls, it is living fellowship with a living Savior, Savior, which transforming us into his image fits us for being able and successful ministers of the gospel. Faithfulness in life will make us faithful in our evangelism. Faithfulness in our obedience to Jesus will make us faithful in our evangelism. Uh, To put this in GBC vernacular, faithfully faithfully shepherding your heart prepares and compels you to preach the gospel to the lost. Faithfully shepherding your heart prepares and compels you to preach to the lost. Letter G, this gospel must serve for the glory of Christ and for the good or the the messenger must serve for the glory of Christ and for the good of men. He was a fellow bondservant who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and then you see this play out over and over. They are aiming, Paul and Epaphras and Paul's other companions are aiming for the good of people. And so we should consider ourselves servants of Christ in an ultimate sense, and then in a secondary sense, servants of men. Letter H, we must expect in our evangelism to labor and suffer. Look like bringing the gospel to that unsafe. Labor could look like bringing the gospel to that unsaved family member one more time who hates it uh, at threat of your relationship. And suffering could look like death, but don't worry, that's the worst people can do to us is kill us. To bring us into the presence of Jesus more, more quickly. And Paul actually experienced this. There's a, this was a, a prison epistle. And so we see that very thing modeled is that he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And you have your, those verses, verse references there. Prayer is, a, is an interesting theme in this book as we talk about what it says about evangelism. Prayer is, is a, a theme running neck and neck in this book. And so this implies that the faithful evangelist must be devoted in prayer uh, for those who he would see be converts or those who have already become converts. Prayer is key. And so you have a list on your outline of things to pray for. 
Paul prayed for these things when he heard that the gospel was received in Colossae. And so we should never be at a loss of what to pray for because we have in Scripture a list of things uh, given to us there. William Carey, who's uh, affectionately known as the father of of modern-day missions, the father of modern-day missions, said this in in his little pamphlet, which I love. Um, He had to write this pamphlet because in his day, people were not eager like our friends to go to another part of the world to tell heathens uh, about the gospel. He had to write this pamphlet to compel them that God wasn't going to save them any other way than through the God-ordained means of preachers going with the word. And he says this, the most glorious works of grace that have ever taken place have been an answer to prayer. And it is in this way we have the greatest reason to suppose that the glorious outpouring of the Spirit, which we expect at last, will be bestowed is through prayer. Thirdly, what we see in Colossians about evangelism, this foundational building block, is the method of evangelism. And some of these things we've already hit on, so I won't repeat them. But again, the message in which evang- the method, excuse me, the method in which evangelism is carried out must be done with words, with clarity, as instruction, by proclamation, with thankfulness. In Christ's name, prayerfully, and then without philosophical reasonings. Let's just hit on a couple of these. Uh, This must be done with thankfulness. This can be a struggle at times, especially if you're like me, uh, and you're really intense, and you have this, like, scowl on your face when you're talking to people. Uh, But the person whom with whom we're talking should get the sense that this person believes that and they actually are thankful for what they are even articulating in this moment, right? Paul prays that for the Colossian believers in verse 12 of chapter 1. He wants them to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, patience joyously doing something, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Unless that changes when you're doing evangelism, if you still share in the inheritance of the saints in light, then as you articulate it to people, there should be a sense of gratitude as you even consider what God has done for you and needs to do for this unbeliever who needs to be saved. So we should do evangelism with thankfulness. That should be a part of our method. It should also be done in Christ's name, go over to chapter 3, verse 17. Paul tells the Colossians, whatever you do, there's everything. In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him, there's thankfulness again, to God the Father. What does it mean to be done in Christ's name or in the name of the Lord Jesus? That is with an awareness of Christ's reputation. Everything that we do as Christians in word or deed 
is in his name and ought to be in representation of him. That includes our evangelism. We represent Christ. You can write down 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 to 25. We represent Christ, and so we must be kind, patiently enduring evil, instructing, gentle, displaying all of those fruits of the Spirit. That must be a part of our method. How you present the gospel is as important as what you say in presenting the gospel. Because you can say the right things and then blaspheme by your character. We must be careful to represent Christ well in our proclamation. Also, don't make philosophical reasonings a part of evangelism. Just look at Ashley should uh, lift a burden from us in our evangelism. Just look at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul actually instructs the Colossian believers, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. With that single verse, Paul puts Christ and philosophy, that is philosophical reasonings, man-made wisdom systems, that are not the gospel, not Christianity, in complete opposition to one another. Apologetics, uh, uh, making an apology or defense of the faith, it is popular to take up philosophical arguments and try and reason with the unbeliever who the gospel tells us, Paul tells us in Romans 1, doesn't want to be reasoned with. They're already unreasonable. It attempts to reason with them that if they could just be outwitted in an argument, then they can be one for the cause of Christ. Or if I can just present enough evidence for why the Bible makes sense, then they will be one. That is false. They already know God exists. They, they hate the God that they know exists. And they don't like you telling them about them, about him. And so we must preach the gospel in all of the, the nuanced ways that the moment may call for. But we shouldn't think that we need anything outside of the sufficient word of God to make us equipped to preach good news to sinners. Paul didn't have anything outside of the word of God, and that was just the Old Testament. And he still was a capable evangelist. And so we should take heart. If you want to be better at evangelism, know your Bible better. Number four. Finally, the motivation behind evangelism. The motivation behind evangelism. We have Christ's supremacy, Christ's shackles, Christ's salvation, Christ's suffering. You could add to that Christ's sufficiency. That's not listed there. And coming wrath. These things ought to move us to preach the gospel to unbelievers. If you find yourself, as I do far too often, apathetic to people around you, if you find yourself making excuses for why you haven't articulated the gospel to such and such, and maybe somebody's coming to mind, even as I'm saying that, you should purpose to preach the gospel to them. If you find yourself there, then these things that are listed even only in the book of Colossians should be sufficient to move us to open our mouths with more boldness and clarity. Christ's supremacy. 
consider what this book says about Christ's supremacy, head over the body, the creator of everything, the firstborn of creation, resurrected from the dead, the only sufficient mediator between God and men to reconcile men to God. As we consider those things, that should do at least a couple things. That should dispel fear from us, and that should increase our boldness. It should dispel fear from us in preaching the gospel because why? If I have a healthy view, a fresh view today of the greatness of Jesus, then what is the person standing in front of me? I don't need to fear the person in front of me. Christ is great. Christ is Lord. God has made Christ head over all, not this person in front of me. They're a vapor. They're going to die. And if they don't believe the gospel under the wrath of God, I don't need to fear them. If we increase our fear of Christ, it will decrease our fear of man. And we need to have a view of the greatness of Christ to dispel that fear of man in us. And this will increase our boldness. Christ shackles. What we mean here is that we are slaves of Christ. We said that the messenger of Christ ought to consider himself a slave. That's Christ shackles. This should do a few things. This should compel us by duty, which is okay and good and right. If you are motivated by duty, that is not something to be ashamed of. It is our duty to act like a slave of Christ. And so we should be compelled to preach the gospel as a duty. This should reorient us toward lowliness to remind us, as Jesus articulated in Luke 17, 10, we are unworthy slaves. If we preach the gospel every moment of every day, we would still not be doing more than what we're called to do. We would still, at the end of the day, say we are unworthy slaves. And this should produce humility in our preaching. As we preach, we're just slaves. We're at the bottom of the, the totem pole. And so we should be humble as we preach because we are slaves. Christ's salvation should motivate us because it should invoke pity for others who don't possess this salvation. As we discover the riches and we shepherd our heart to understand the riches that we have in Christ, we should pity those who don't have these or who are still rejecting them. This should also ensure a joyful disposition when preaching to others as we consider the riches that we've been giving in, in Christ in this salvation. We should have a joyful disposition in preaching. And this should secure confidence in my speech. If we believe what the gospel has given, what the inheritance God says we have is, then we should speak like we believe those things. And the person, whether they believe it or not, on the other side of that conversation will be confronted with a confident person who believes what he's saying. Lastly, Christ's suffering should prepare us to suffer, and it should remind us of the severity of God over sin when it comes to sin. When we consider Christ's suffering, we should be reminded that this is what God thinks about sin, and this is what was required by God uh, for sin. That type of infinite suffering, infinite wrath poured out on a substitute should remind us of what awaits those who do not repent. 
that type of wrath. And we should compassionately and zealously then seek to help them avoid the wrath that they are running headlong toward. And finally, not only uh, eternal wrath, but coming wrath. The wrath that God, that Jesus, will rescue believers from one day before he unleashes that wrath on an unrepentant world is what we should seek to help the unbeliever avoid. Hell, yes, and the tribulation. Because if Christ came now, everybody who rejected our gospel proclamation would remain, and they would have to endure, they would be forced to endure a wrath of God in a temporal sense. And I believe that Colossians 3, 5 to 6 is what Paul is articulating uh, there. We're out of time. That was uh, a whirlwind. It felt like that to me. The last page of the outline, if you don't have the outline, there's some recommended resources online. Um, There are books about evangelism, books about apologetics, books on prayer, and uh, William Carey's biography that have been personally encouraging to me and stimulated my own ability and zeal for evangelism. Um, And then there are are sermons as well, sermons that have been preached here and in Jupiter and at the Ecclesia Conference. So uh, I hope that this is an encouragement to you. Um, This is emboldening to you to to open your mouth. We have nothing to fear. only, only eternity and, and rewards given to us by God that await us. I'll close with these words from Richard Baxter. O Lord, save us from the plague of infidelity and hard-heartedness ourselves, or else how shall we be fit instruments of saving others from it? O Lord, do that on our souls, which you would use us to do on the souls of others. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Uh, for who you are, for what your word says, for the people you brought into our lives to bring us this message. Uh, It was gracious of you to do that, and then not only to allow us to hear, but to understand the grace of God and truth, that it would be received by us. Help us to be more faithful with your message, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.